back, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Paidea Today. I am joined here, as always, by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and we are back into what has widely been heralded as the greatest play ever written by many authors, that is to say, Shakespeare's Hamlet. And uh, Scott, I believe you had something to get us going here today. I wanted to read its most uh, from its most famous soliloquy. It's full of soliloquies. Um, and then uh, that'll lead us into the discussion. So it's to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit on the unworthy takes, when he himself might make his quietus with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprise of great pitch and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And then he is interrupted by Ophelia and breaks off his reflection there. So the famous lines here, um, to be or not to be, have been used by some in the 20th century to suggest this play is about existentialism, um, nihilism, the face of uh, the status of human life in the face of the great unknown as he presents it here. Uh, this great unknown that he presents it here as, however, uh, has only come to him in this form because, as I said last time, uh, his whole theological framework has been subverted, not only by the death of his father and the loss of his king, but by the fact that a man who has gone to Wittenberg to study Protestant theology has met his, the ghost of his father on the battlements of Elsinore in Denmark, and his father speaks of something that sounds akin to purga purgatory. And the Reformation uh, disputed the existence of purgatory, said it was an unbiblical uh, reference. And, and so I think it has nothing to do with that issue per se. And uh, in another uh, of the soliloquies, he talks about um, the, uh, the Almighty um, placing his cannon against self-slaughter in other words, forbidding suicide, which he also contemplates. This says to me that even though his theological framework is now in turmoil, he is not wholly shaken out of a Christian way of looking at life and reality. And that remains the context of the play. 
despite um, the later intentions of interpreters to suggest otherwise. Uh, Bill, did you have thoughts on that? Well, first of all, let me say that that simple soliloquy has supplied posterity with a great host of now famous sayings that are dredged up time and again by the learned. Uh, so this is something that is immediately striking. Another thing I think we need to talk about here is perhaps um, where people are getting hung up a bit on the notion of, as you called it, existentialism. I call it the problem of being in Hamlet. That's the same thing. Yeah, because in my view for Hamlet, the problem is that he is struggling not just with uh, being or not being. He's struggling with the fact that when one is one is evil, as I was saying uh, in the previous podcast. So to be is to be evil, according to Hamlet's way of thinking here, at least what he's speculating uh, upon. And as you say, this throws um, this uh, series of speculations throws him into a profound sort of paralyzing moral doubt or indecision. And this is something that uh, I make more uh, a point of, I think, than you do in the classroom. Yeah. So seeing the ghost, seeing the state of the ghost, the ghost seems to be in some place which might or might not be purgatory, throws his entire theological and cosmological view, a young Hamlet, uh, into doubt. And so a lot of other things are thrown into doubt, and all of a sudden we move into this moral flux. Yep. A mark of Hamlet's integrity that he does not strike while still uncertain, not at least the great blow. He does later on, he, he acts impulsively and does finally act uh, in the middle of the play when he erroneously stabs Polonius, thinking he's stabbing Claudius. Yeah. So when he does act, he gets it unbelievably wrong, which yeah, is just I, another sort of cautionary moment for young Hamlet. I, I cannot act in terms of justice or even revenge until I'm absolutely certain, because look what happens when I do act impulsively and don't have all the information. I end up murdering somebody who's innocent, um, and which just reinforces again his his supposition that evil is everywhere. Everything in Denmark is rotten, including Hamlet, who identifies the evil. So it makes the whole situation a lot more complex. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's excellent. Yeah, that's, and I think it's uh, entirely appropriate. So neither of us dispute that this Hamlet is a contemplative figure. Um, and his challenge is to be the Renaissance man that Shakespeare's audience would expect him to be, to marry the, the twin features of a Renaissance man that, that of contemplation and action together. So he's going to take revenge, but he's not going to take revenge if it's not upon uh, the right understanding of what justice is. It, it has to be a just act. And, and the problem is, as you say, he's not sure what that is. And even theologically, as I say, I think he is thrown into some doubt here. So he's, he is in, um, a difficult bind here on multiple fronts. But I, I, I do think that he's not just some sort of proto-romantic figure. He's inherently different than everyone else. He, you know, this sort of, he's very much the, I mean, that's Coleridge's take on it. As much as I like Coleridge, this to me is a ridiculous um, interpretation of Hamlet. He's not a romantic, misunderstood individual. That's not it. He is the heir of the King of Denmark and he has no place in the court. His uncle has married his mother. I mean, it's not that he's misunderstood. It's that his world has been turned upside down. Yeah, uh, typ typifying him through the usual romantic lens here doesn't do uh, a reader uh, any good whatsoever. And Hamlet is 
like anybody who's achieved a high level of uh, intellectual and potentially moral competence, by necessity, that isolates you. It doesn't make you a romantic outlying rebel figure or anything like this. It's simply that you have perspectives that other people around you don't have, and then you have to decide what you're going to do about that in regards to the society uh, which you survey and look at here. So Hamlet is isolated in some senses, but it's not a romantic isolation uh, as it has so often been portrayed, not just by Coleridge, but by others as well. Yeah. Hamlet. And it's not just, it's not just hesitation in the face of being either per se in that sense. It's the problem of evil and the, yeah. Yeah, he's caught in an impossible situation. And in some senses, we as the audience are caught in an impossible situation. He doesn't strike for the right reasons because he doesn't want to strike unjustly. And in order to strike justly, he must have full, complete access to the truth of the matter. It seems overwhelmingly likely that Claudius did indeed murder his father and therefore deserves to be punished for it. But that knowledge stops short. Um, and and it actually his father, is the ghost of his father, urging him to do the thing that he himself feels uh, is right actually discourages him from doing it because now he has somebody who claims to come from a place like purgatory telling him to do what he thought he should do confirming what he thought was the case and yet now it may be that he's being led by demonic forces to do something which is unjust and that leads him to the paralysis he's in um so Again, he doesn't reflect, it's not the artist, it's not the contemplative industry. He can't do what he knows he has to do, which is to, to, to do the just thing and take vengeance. He's also struggling with the fact, and we've mentioned this at a few points before, that human knowledge by its very nature does not have access, cannot ever have access to absolute truth, which of course is what he desires. So there's a degree in my view of vanity on the part of Hamlet's intellectual and moral anticipations here. It goes back to the notion that, for instance, we cannot have, uh, uh, to begin with, absolute knowledge of God. We cannot comprehend God, to use the old language. We can only apprehend God and get portions of his nature through a glass darkly, as it were. Likewise, in all other affairs, anybody who is a serious student of philosophy knows that human knowledge must always stop at the edge of the speculative and cannot make claims to absolute truth as indeed Galileo and people like this were making um, around this time. Um, so, yes. So he, res he resolves to solve his problem by acting like a playwright. Yeah, so this is typical Shakespearean metaphor. It is. <laughs> and, um, I love it, but uh, it's made too much of, I suspect, by many modern critics, professors, teachers, even students who become just obsessed with metatheater in Shakespeare. If it doesn't get all the usual baggage, I'm happy to talk about it, but it usually does. But in our case, we can just go straight to the matter here and talk about the play. Did you want to say something about the type of play that it is? Well, we talked about it as a revenge tragedy, right? Yes, but the play within a play. Oh, well, it's a dumb play. It's it's called uh, that in, within the play. And it, it's originally sort of a mum. They, they, they act, but they don't speak. Um, and so it's a very particular type of of theater um, and its action without without words. But I think it was you that wanted to speak more about that. And I, I, I hesitate to say this because we're digging down after digging down. <laughs> and as I say, we're getting closer and closer to Lucifer as we get to the center of the earth. Yes, well, you know my instincts here, uh, the, the listeners. 
uh, might be interested to know that I was given a stern warning here by Dr. Masson not to geek out as medievalists tend. <laughs> we go digging down ideologically into the roots of the matter and the sources of things and what have you. But, and uh, then run the risk of coming out the other side in Australia where purgatory is and that way, which doesn't exist. Which doesn't not Australia, but purgatory. So, yes. There we might encounter Hamlet's father living in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this uh, this literary conceit has become rather too elaborate <laughs> to sustain itself and collapses under its own the weight of its own improbability. We hope so. Yeah, it's a dumb show. It's a medieval play, uh, form of theater, which is why Ophelia says, what means this, my lord? Because it's weird and quirky and old fashioned and what have you. And traditionally dumb shows were presented with an interpreter who was interpreting right. allegorical action on the side because a lot of times the audiences wouldn't understand what the silent drama on the stage was all about. As you say, it's a dumb show. And this is why Hamlet's in the background, prattling away endlessly like that super annoying individual over at the theater who just doesn't shut up when the movie is running and has to right. comment on everything. Hamlet's actually following the traditions, the theatrical traditions that go along with these sorts of things. But the idea is interesting here because it is showing how drama is to draw out certain moral and ethical realities uh, and then have justice essentially follow from these sorts of things. So this is implying that drama in particular and art more broadly speaking, uh, in Shakespeare's view, does have moral and ethical purposes alongside aesthetic ones. And this is something I think a lot of people do not talk about here. If we had time to talk about Sir Philip Sidney and his defense of poesy, this would have been a matter made very, very explicit indeed. So this is at the forefront of a lot of artists' minds in Renaissance England, but it again, it's something that quickly gets glossed over by a lot of modern commentators. What exactly is the purpose of drama to Shakespeare? Well, he enunciates it in the play. It's to hold the mirror up to nature as to her to show her true self. That's, yes. It, it's like ut pictura poesis, poesis. It's the Horace's dictum, right? It's to show the way things ought to be, not just yes. the way they are, but the way they ought to be, the ideal reality and to be, it's a, there's a moral function to drama, in other words. Yes, and this invokes the language again of Aristotle's possible worlds. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. It's an articulation of a possible world, but possible according to what frameworks, what expectations, what value sets, and how did these interplay upon one another? Uh, art uh, as a work of fiction has tremendous scope to open those questions up and to explore these sorts of questions. And I know that you and I later on are going to discuss Renaissance and then perhaps in more depth uh, enlightenment notions of nature and very particularly human nature so i don't want to go too far down that road no here. no go down it because we're moving away from the renaissance don't you think we're going to keep digging backwards <laughs> we're moving <laughs> on uh, you, you may wish we were going to go back so Indeed. go on bring it out now bring out your dead uh well yeah so <laughs> you got that or are you prepared to speak to that at all a little bit, yeah. I'm not prepared, but uh, I, I'll, I'll wing it, as you, uh, uh, you often, <laughs> which always goes disastrously for me. The notion here is that we're looking for certain natural states of human being uh, when we're talking about nature. Uh, and Alexander Pope will later go on to talk about the good, the universal, the true, um, the eternal, and the timeless in terms of the human. So there's an expectation of what human beings ought to be. And this invites a host of interesting questions. Exactly what does it mean to be human? 
Um, I, I risk here of uh, invoking Harold Bloom. I don't want to do that. No, don't uh, do that. But certainly Shakespeare, along with many of his contemporaries, is actually exploring what precisely is human nature? What are these universal traits? What are the universal um, struggles that we are bound up with? Uh, Shakespeare never gets into what I think is one of the more interesting aspects of this uh, insofar as human anthropology and questions of human being um, arise from notions of Christology and stuff like that. But that's that is a later conversation that we yeah. want to have. But yes, Shakespeare is very much interested in not just nature, broadly speaking, but human nature in particular, and even more particularly, the moral nature that is intrinsic to all humans, and then how we have these variations and potentially perversions of it yeah. in Hamlet, in the figure of Hamlet. And, well, that's, and the, that's the great theme of King Lear, where he talks about nature. He's really getting into the different facets of nature, what we would call biology, um, which is not a term that's used in Shakespeare's day, um, no. but kinship is. Um, and Shakespeare also talks about this when he is in reference to Claudius, a little more than kin and less than kind, right? So there's a, um, he's playing on this notion of, um, of, of a natural bond and on, at, the some t at the same time an immoral bond that he's not in the same moral framework he's a, in other words he's a, he's a an immoral man that i'm confronting here it, shakespeare is alluding to that here there's no doubt i can't remember remember if i mentioned this in the previous podcast but we have to remember here that this is the uncle nephew bond and there is no stronger bond in terms of kinship in the early germanic world than the uncle nephew bond it is stronger than the son to his mother the son to his father uh sibling bonds what have you the number one most sacrosanct family relationship is uncle and nephew and there are complicated reasons for that but again i didn't know that yeah well, it's uh this is why um certain betrayals for instance in beowulf are such a big deal because it's a nephew betraying an uncle and you'll see this again in the viking sagas as well everybody in the original audience their hair would have stood on end as this betrayal unfolded. like you that of all the kinship bonds that you broke you broke that one yes i broke that one so that's why it's a big deal anyway i'm not sure shakespeare would have even known that but saxon grammatic no. on it so there's a knock-on effect here but again i'm going down a well so let's not do that yeah there's a lot of wells oh yeah um but so, very interesting very interesting yeah um but but he so he seeks to resolve the problem of justice through the dumb show through drama uh, and thereby to catch the conscience of the king to use his phrase the play is the thing wherein i shall catch the conscience of the king and he will um as the dramaturge figure the one who is so there's a big discussion of what's going on with the play and he he involves himself he greets the players he's apparently a great fan of uh theater because the, he knows them they know him as a patron of the arts and he also speaks to them about how to act as well and how to do so and don't do this, but do do that. So he's, he's getting into uh, contemporary discussions about, about what one does when one acts and how one is to act and why and so forth. So he's getting into all of that, um, quite frankly, detailed discussion there, which probably passes most readers by. But for Shakespeare is essential to the moral framework and the aim of the theater. And here, the moral framework in addition to showing us the, the the measure of the times and the form of mankind it's to 
function to serve a, a specific cause, which is not normally there, which is to catch his uncle, it's to expose him to his own conduct. Because remember, it's the, the dumb show, they pour poison in the man's ear just as his father had died. And of course, he expects at that point his uncle to realize that somebody is onto him and then he will respond. And if he does respond, then he knows he's done it. And that, that will set it off, right? Yeah, it's also interesting here. Let's talk a little bit more about Claudius and then Claudius and, and Hamlet. Claudius is not like other villains, many other villains in Shakespeare's drama. Uh, I think you're particularly of Iago in Othello, where you have a very introspective villain on certain occasions, where he, as it were, he turns and he looks in the mirror and asks himself, why are you doing these awful things? Or again, Macbeth, who just feels uh, driven willy-nilly by uh, ever-escalating circumstances into greater and greater and greater acts of evil and murderousness and things like this. Claudius is not some kind of conscious-less... Conscious less <laughs> he conscience. Yes, he is not without conscience. Um, this is somebody who feels guilt and can feel it very powerfully and yet has done an evil thing. And that makes him, in some senses, a more complex villain in certain ways. Uh, because Though Macbeth is like that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, he gets, uh, Macbeth is, well, I'd love to talk about this, uh, Macbeth's psychological development as the tragedy goes on, but we're never going to really have a chance to do that. But Claudius is one of these individuals who oscillates back and forth between the horrible things he has to do, and then he feels a, a degree of repentance for these sorts of things. So this is somebody who is morally alive that Hamlet wants to get at. And I sometimes hear people talking about Claudius as if he's some kind of sociopathic monster who has no conscience at all. No, there's plenty of evidence for conscience all throughout the play. And then some people will say to me, the only reason he feels a degree of repentance for what he's done is because there are consequences uh, in this world to these sorts of things. And so he's like a kid who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar and now he's going to get punished. And that's why he's sorry. And just nah, but he, he acts privately in a way, right? So there, there are that, too many indications in the play of something more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, I, I do not see his confession in the play as a confession of attrition, as it's traditionally known, where you feel bad because there are bad consequences. You feel uh, this is a, a confession of contrition. You feel bad because you have violated goodness. You violated yourself. You have violated what God intended for you. And that's why you feel, but there's, so there's no self-centered, self-serving aspect to the confession going no, on so there, So when he's on his knees and he's praying, and the words, the thoughts fly up to heaven, but the but the but he can't repent, and he doesn't want to repent because he doesn't want to give up what he's gained. That so there's a there's actually a struggle going on there while he's on his knees, and and we don't know what the prayers are per se, um, but we do know that there's a genuine struggle that's happened there. He did seek to um, come to some sort of a resolution and, and repentance of what he'd done but he could not do that without giving up everything that he'd gain and he was unwilling to do that right that's how your that's your take right yes and then even more problematically we have hamlet who of course doesn't want to kill him and take vengeance right. at that point because he wants claudius's soul damned to hell but <laughs> which is a rather unchristian thing to do i mean it's bad enough to to kill somebody uh, in terms of murder but to kill the body is one thing, to kill the soul, uh, or that is to say condemn it to hell, seems to me a much more serious and egregious crime when it comes to that. How morally upright is Hamlet 
in his impulse to make sure that he damns us all to hell. That seems intensely fraught with uh, wickedness and evil. Sure. And again, this it fits what you said earlier. Yep. So there, there's that. We also have to remember, and again, I don't recall if we talked about this last time, that at a certain point in Hamlet, Hamlet and Claudius knows that one of the two has to go. One of the two is going to die. One of the two is going to get killed. And in good productions of Hamlet, you'll see the actors and the directors exploit that to an absolute crackling tension in certain scenes where the actors are looking daggers at each other and they know one of us has got to go. And then they build off of that and they build the lines off of that. They build the mood off of that. And again, when we're just reading the text, when we're just sort of, you know, going through the pages here, again, this is something that we can easily miss. And I think it's kind of a rich level of the play. Uh, and so it's a bit of a shame when people do miss that kind of attention. Did we want to speak further about Claudius damnation, vengeance, and justice, or did we want to perhaps turn our attention now to uh, the twinned subjects of madness and one we've already brought up here, suicide? Because these I, are... I want the, I want the latter um, because I think we've we've to some degree trolled over the other a fair wee bit, and there's a lot left in the play. Um, and we have not explored this idea of madness uh, and, uh, and the suicide and those sorts of things. No, I think that's definitely a ground. So what do you want to say on that? Because he feigns madness. He puts on an antic disposition. This is the one way. He, so when he exposes the king, he decides, uh, he decides that he is going to feign madness to, in a sense, to act. So he decides he, so not only is he a dramaturge figure that's going to put on the play, catch the conscience of the king he's going to act as if he were someone other than himself um and so in that sense and and so the question is is he mad and claudius doesn't think so because he's as intelligent as hamlet is he knows that he's being played and everyone else is being played except the two of them realize what's going on i think they both realize this but of course uh, Claudius can't expose his hand in front of everyone without losing their sympathy and support. Likewise, Hamlet. So the two of them are dramaturge figures playing everybody else while acting a certain role. On the part of Claudius, acting the loving uncle who's concerned about his nephew. On the part of Hamlet, acting like he is crazy, uh, lovesick, etc. And he's even going to play on his uh, beloved Ophelia to fulfill this role and that puts her in a state of madness yeah so again as we had met before with the dumb show here we have meta acting and it's another thing that shakespeare likes to do you see this in many different plays from display here to midsummer night's dream there's uh, there, there are actors who are acting but they're acting within the act and so it's it's a double layered act and then you get as you say you quite rightly point out both Claudius and Hamlet know that the other character is acting the act and Claudius cannot break that fourth wall without tipping his hand right so to pretend that he's taken in but he's not taken in and then there's this wonderful doubling up again of Hamlet knowing that Claudius isn't taken in and is pretending not to be taken in and Hamlet pretends not to know that Claudius knows that 
Hamlet knows that Claudius knows that and down we go to, uh, to potential madness, but not And actually. then there's the all-knowing Polonius who comes in and critiques his, his language and so forth and tells, and then tells his daughter how to act. Right. So yes. Right. Go ahead. Polonius, I should just as an aside mention here, Polonius is, if played correctly, a, an absolutely hilarious figure in here. He follows in many very consistent ways um, a character type that I suspect, but can't prove that Shakespeare is borrowing from Commedia dell'arte. This is the figure of the dottore. Uh, no, um, not the dottore. Is it? Oh, yes, it is the Dottore. The Dottore is this stock figure from Commedia dell'arte, which is a street theater of uh, which grew up in Renaissance Italy, northern Italy. And he is a pedantic know-it-all who's actually doesn't know anything at all. And I'm sure most of our viewers actually know at least one stock Dottore uh, from their childhood uh, viewing and reading, which is the figure of Owl from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, yeah. Owl has deep sage learning to pass on to everybody and it's absolute drivel but he has this respect because he's owl and he's very wise and so on and so forth and so everyone pretends or actually does uh believe the teachings of owl the dottore um and then they get into all sorts of trouble because the dottore has steered them wrong and they're doing something absolutely laughable polonius follows in the same thing he is full of life advice in hamlet and if you think about a lot of it for even a second you realize this is absolute dribble. This learned man doesn't seem to know much at all. And here he is lecturing some, a character in Hamlet who actually is astoundingly sharp and well-educated. And so the extremely intelligent man has to sit, stand there and get lectured by the fool who has no, all no, the it's respect. A, he's lecturing his daughter, isn't he? He lectures everybody. Yeah, that's true. He lectures, he lectures everybody. That's true. <laughs> Um, and he lectures his son, he lectures, he, he, hold that guy still for a second and he'll start giving you life advice. And I'm sure we all know people like this. Um, so that's Polonius. And he's also a manipulator too. We have to remember, he's kind of a, he tries to be a puppet master. With he's Ophelia. a politician. Exactly. But let's come back to this matter of madness and Hamlet feigns madness. And we have madness all over the place again, throughout Shakespeare's work. We have it famously uh, obviously in Macbeth, which we just talked about, we have it uh, very famously in numerous different iterations, fascinatingly, I would argue, in King Lear, um, yep. which is to my, uh, one of the, its main motifs is a study of madness and what goes on with that. But here it comes along again, and we do have, again, two instances of madness. As soon as Shakespeare starts doubling and tripling things up, we know that he intends us to start comparing and contrasting. Yes. And again, this is something I oftentimes have to encourage my students to do. A lot of the art is going to arise in this play from comparing and contrasting various uh, motifs that are occurring in the play. The two suicides, the two madnesses, and uh, all these sorts of things that come along with it. Or so, even Polonius and the grave diggers. So the wise owl and then the, fo the fools in the graveyard, right? Yeah. That's because the, the, the fool is... Uh, oftentimes the speaker of the greatest wisdom in Shakespearean plays. And, and this brings me to another thing that occurred to me as you were talking about madness here. People who are, you are talking about madness, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is a madman is free to act the way somebody yes. sane is not. And this throws off the fetters potentially for Hamlet that have been holding him back from action up to this point. And it seems to offer him this, this escape clause. 
if you think about it, I mean, we, don't, we don't hold mad, insane people accountable in the same way we hold uh, normal people accountable for True. their moral and comportment. And so this gives Hamlet all kinds of freedom if he behaves as if he's insane. Um, but how, in your view, does that then compare to what seems to be the genuine madness and ultimately potentially the suicide of Ophelia? Well, both of them have a problem with role and action and moral action for that matter. Ophelia is in the awful position of being a woman in this court. I, um, and furthermore, uh, being a good daughter. She's not, um, she's a moral figure. She's an admirable figure. Everyone seems to love Ophelia actually. Uh, so she is, she's entirely amiable. Um, and yet she's badly treated by everyone. And she is, at, she is in the eye of the storm is how I take it for her. She has literally lost everything. Um, she has had protestations of love from Hamlet. She does love him and he furthermore loves her, I believe. So when he jumps into the grave because he's going to mourn her, I think he is now not acting for the first time. He throws himself because he genuinely, and then of course, his, her brother Laertes likewise jumps in. They're fighting over who loves her the most. It's something I mean, surreal and perverse in some ways. But, um, but, but, but she breaks because she has no role to play anymore. She has trapped and there's no way out. There's no right way out. And she loses hope in this. And, and so she, she doesn't have the luxury what Hamlet is doing of feigning. Had she feigned madness, it would have given her a little bit of freedom. To, but because she is actually trying to do the right thing and be a good girl, she literally has nowhere to turn and she just breaks. Yeah, Ophelia is probably the most morally upright character in the play. She's the innocent. If, if there is an innocent in the play, I'm determined that it is Ophelia. Yep. And in certain ways, she gets sacrificed on the altars of various individuals' ambitions. She's the worst. She, in a way, she compare and contrast her with um, what's her name in King Lear. Uh, um, Cloud, uh, Cordelia. Yes. Right again, uh, the best character, the and she is sacrificed there, and it's a it's a it's a measure of the iniquity of the court that it consumes the best member of the entire group. Yeah, it, and it's also I think important to remember that. Ophelia is driven to madness precisely because she is good. She is the best of these individuals. A less morally uh, uh, upright individual would not have found themselves in quite the dilemma that Ophelia discovers. You Excellent. mentioned that she is obligated to obey her father. Um, and again, that is something uh, since the romantics that is easy to gloss over. The weight of that obligation is enormous the way modern audiences don't realize. If her father says, you must do this, this, and this, she has a very serious moral obligation to follow that, uh, that directive, that command. And yet what he is ordering her to do, she also knows to be wrong, to be, yes. to be deceptive, to be mendacious. So morally, she has to obey her father who is ordering her to do something immoral. And this is an impossible situation, and it seems to cause a break. And this brings me to another point I'd like to mention about that. That's a great point. That's a great point. It's, her madness is not first and foremost an intellectual break with social and physical reality and all the things that go along with that and a break with uh, the reality of traditions and institutions of that nature. 
I think her madness is a break from moral and ethical reality. It no longer makes sense. She is sundered from moral, moral ethical, and spiritual reality. So she's like Hamlet, is what I'm saying. She's a foil for Hamlet. Yes. Except that he has the pro he has the capacity to act in a way that she does not. Correct. Correct. She is in a very subservient position. Hamlet is not going to upset, uh, uh, accept such subservience. In theory, Claudius is now his father and could command him in the same way. And yet Hamlet means to kill his very quote unquote father, which again is rich with all sorts of symbolic possibilities and what have you. But again, I'm not sure we need to go down that road. But this is brilliant because, but, it, because it contradicts the, uh, you're gonna to wanna to continue this point maybe, but it contradicts the view of Ophelia as this pathetically weak figure who falls into the water and like a pre-Raphaelite just sits there and then sinks and drowns in this, this, this passive puppet of a figure. That to me is psychologically improbable, morally improbable. It doesn't, it sees no depth in Ophelia at all. And I, I agree with you that she is a much more admirable figure than is portrayed there. She's not just somebody who's been, you know, innocent in the sense that she's just, she didn't do anything wrong. That's not what we mean by this here. She's innocent in the sense that she's morally good and she has no realm, no possibility of action. And, and that's the wickedness of the court is that consumes goodness in it right at the center. Yeah, and this brings up again, a universal kind of an impulse. All of us, I think if we are intellectually and morally responsible and alive have realized moments in our life when we all of a sudden find ourselves in a moral, not just a quandary, but a dilemma where if we choose one direction, it goes wrong morally for us. And if we choose its opposite direction, it'll also go wrong for us. What kind of a head state are we in there? And we can kind of get a, a sense of the flavor of the madness that presses in and eventually engulfs Ophelia. All of us have been in this, this awful situation. So again, this is just one minor point of Shakespeare giving us those universal human experiences. What happens when you go morally insane? Uh, does she just accept it? No, she doesn't. And that the very fact that she actually does not accept the, the seeming impossibility of her moral world, again, speaks to her character. She's not naive in the usual sense that she's oftentimes portrayed and discussed. Um, she's actually a good person. That's what we mean by innocent here, not ignorant. That would be a completely different kind of a character. And I have seen her portrayed time and again as somebody who is fundamentally ignorant. And that's why she is ultimately ground up and destroyed because she just didn't get it. No, this is a moral problem here that, that we're dealing with. And that's what ultimately gets him. Uh, do we want to say more about uh, Hamlet's response to the death of Ophelia? Or did you want to say more actually about the seeming suicide? You don't necessarily accept the fact that it is a suicide, or do you? Where do you stand on this issue? I think it's unclear. I really don't know. I have trouble, given everything we've said about Ophelia, believing that it's a suicide. I think she falls into the water and her heavy garments drown her. Um, I don't think it's a suicide because, because, again, she shares Hamlet's views on suicide. I don't think that she gives in to despair and gives away her life, throws it away effectively, but she does out of a sense of enormous distress uh, fall into the water. She puts herself in the position and she, I, I think, unluckily drowns. But this is one of the questions that the grave diggers are asking. And they're bothered by the fact that they're burying her inside the uh, cemetery where Christians are buried. And because they think that she's drowned herself and their conclusion, at least one of them is, 
well, that's the way it is. I guess in the afterlife, it's just the way it is in this life that those in a position of responsibility, position of, of higher social standing, they get the perks there in the afterlife as well. That's the, the ironic take on it. But that doesn't mean that she actually did commit suicide. Yeah, we have to, when we're reading Hamlet, especially, we have to stay aware, uh, very aware of the fact that there's a continual interplay between seeming and being. Yep. And people are being deceived and fooled and misreading situations in every direction, including Hamlet himself, of course. And so the gravediggers, yeah, a lot of people will say, you know, their, their discussion kind of underscores the fact that uh, Ophelia is a suicide, that this is what happened. But having said that, the likelihood that she would actually plan such things and do such things seems uh, um, not terribly convincing. She's insane. She has broken with, as I say, not just, uh, yes, first and foremost, moral and ethical and spiritual reality. There's a break there. But there is also a break with other forms of reality, too. This is not to say that it's an ex a break exclusively with those things. And so how safe is Ophelia to be wandering around the countryside in this mental state? Not safe at all is your short. Uh, is well, the, short no, the, the, the natural world is not a safe place. It's not a romantic nature. She's moved outside the bounds of society there, but society was not a safe place for her either. So she, there is no safe place for for Ophelia. Um, her her uh, erstwhile lover is under a death sentence. Basically, her brother wants um, wants him dead. Everybody wants Hamlet dead. Her, he spurned her, pushed her away. Um, her father is a, is a buffoon whom she's, um, who, who are, it, it's her duty to listen and obey to what he has to say. So she really has no place. And she herself has been caught up in a web of deceit. And in the end, Hamlet's slain her father, who for whatever else he is, he's still, she's still his daughter and he's a fool, but he's dead. And he's dead because Hamlet was goaded on because she allowed herself to be played. Right. So that she didn't expect that outcome. And she so she's in. I think she feels guilty because her father's dead. And furthermore, that she goaded Hamlet to kill him. Yeah. All so, of those things. I mean, she was a it's not that she willingly did it is that she was caught up in a deceitful act and a bad outcome has transpired. Right. Yeah, uh, this again underscores her helplessness in these things. Polonius wants her to behave in a certain way. Her brother wants her to behave in a certain way. Her Claudius wants her to behave in a certain ways. Um, so does Hamlet's mother. And Hamlet himself wants her to behave in certain ways. And, and all of these things have potentially disastrous moral outcomes. And if Ophelia has her eyes open, and it's my view that she does, then she knows how impossible her situation is in the moral, uh, the, the moral world of Elsinore. And this is going to underscore that death. Um, it brings up another thing that just occurred to me here, which is that insofar as Hamlet himself has contemplated suicide and not done it, Ophelia may have contemplated suicide and done it, or again, then again, may not have. We need to remember here that we ourselves as the audience, it's not just that many characters in the play are misreading reality at whatever level, it's that we ourselves might be being manipulated by the play itself and our understandings of those characters, the situation, the setting, what have you. Are we being messed with in certain ways? We know that Shakespeare does this in other plays, uh, at the end of The Tempest, famously, or in other places like this. Uh, so we ourselves have to be on guard against the very madness that presses in on Ophelia and takes her ultimately. Well, I mean, the purpose of this is, I mean, Shakespeare's a, 
is a Renaissance dramatist. He recognizes his responsibilities as a Renaissance dramatist before God to direct people in the right direction, to uphold justice and to, to loathe injustice and sin and so forth. So I, when, he, when you say that he's messing with them, what you mean is that he's asking them to scrutinize their own motives and actions in this, right? So he's, he's not trying to confuse them. No, 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 no. Right, right. So the, the, and the play reinforces that because the figure of uh, Fortinbras comes in at the end, the foil for Hamlet, the other revenge tragedy um, hero, and comes in and cleans up and fixes what had been so morally corrupt about Elsinore and Denmark and avenges his father who'd been slain by Hamlet Sr. Um, and, and so that it's clear that Hamlet, the play, is a, is a play that deeply uphold, upholds justice because it, it restores an order that was lost by the original iniquity. But you're That's... talking about something more than that, right? You're just talking about allowing them to scrutinize the complexities of human action, including their own. Yeah, we talk about uh, recognition as a standard feature of drama, there's the moment of recognition, especially in tragedy, whether it's- And agnorisis from Shakespeare, right? Or from Shakespeare, from Aristotle, yeah. But there's also a sense in which the audience themselves are expected to undergo an experience of recognition, like, ah, there's a connection there. Ah, there's another connection there. Ooh, is that me? I think it might be. And this is something that Shakespeare's plays do extremely well. There was another thing I wanted to talk about there, but it's gone out of my head now. The Grave Diggers? Um, no. The Grave Diggers. That uh, wasn't it. That wasn't it, no. No, it wasn't. It came and it went. Um, gone. Okay. In any event. It'll come back when we're done. I've got it. It's, it's swum up from the depths of my brain. It's this notion that the world at the end of the play is set right again. And I just watched uh, another lecture on Shakespeare where they're celebrating the chaos and the despair that inhabits the ends of certain Shakespearean plays. When in point of fact, this almost never happens. It never happens in fact, other than maybe a couple where it's sort of ambiguous, but yeah. But the world generally does get set right again. So this also means that you have to anticipate from at least the original uh, Shakespearean audience that you know what a world set right looks like. So they would recognize that. And this tells us a lot about Shakespeare's expectations, at least of his audience's worldview, if not Shakespeare's own worldview. So uh, this is also a, a useful barometer with which to gauge things. What exactly does a healthy worldview look like? Well, ha let's have a look at the end of Hamlet or the end of Lear or the end of Macbeth or, or plays like this. I also wanted to talk, I returned to something here that we were dealing with earlier. Hamlet's hesitation, in my view, has a lot to do with his inability to access absolute truths and things of this nature here. But a couple of things here that don't get talked about, or at least very directly, and maybe uh, you have a different view on this, are the concepts of faith on the one hand and grace on the other hand. These things just don't seem to play as centrally, in my view, uh, as they ought to in the play of Hamlet. Where is grace and forgiveness around Claudius? It doesn't seem to even be under serious consideration. Vengeance will out, and that's how it's going to play here. Likewise, 
it is simply the state of human knowledge that when we apprehend reality, these are always limited apprehensions. And so when we act, we always, to some extent, have to act in faith. And yet Hamlet won't do that either. So there is no forgiveness in Hamlet. There, grace has seems to have no, uh, the, the concept of grace has no purchase on his imagination. Um, and he doesn't seem to be willing to step out in, in any direction, even really needful directions in faith. Uh, what are your thoughts on any of those? I think you're right. I think if you look at other plays that are even uh, tragedies, you can see the work and the importance of grace in the conduct of the of or the the teaching of the play in the conduct of the characters as a figure that demonstrates grace to another character and that's an important feature in the drama and part of the dramaturge figure is to show that grace and bring it about but hamlet not only does not do that in this play at all um the not only not in the dumb show and none of it there's there, literally there's none of it whatsoever this is about vengeance uh, justice in the rough sense of justice. This, this is uh, taking um, vengeance on your enemies. Although to be fair, it's not just the enemies, it's the enemies of the state. It, it, they, there are capital offenses that have been committed, but, but more than that, the head of state has been executed, who happened to be his father as well. And that needs to be um, dealt with rather severely. And it happens, interestingly, not at the hands of Hamlet per se, it's it comes from outside the kingdom. That's how bad things are. And I can't think of another play where it concludes quite like that. Although I guess King Lear, the King of France rides in with Cordelia and, and it is actually, but, but France and England are not, I mean, they're often conjoined in some ways in the medieval period that's being portrayed, right? They're not just, they're not separate nation, separate kingdoms. They're often exchanging kings and so mm -hmm. forth, right? But here it really is a different king from overseas that has to rectify things and and so maybe it's it's not that it's denying grace it's talking more on the on the geopolitical stage which is unusual in shakespeare he usually is talking about internal kingdom things rather than external but here he really does require help from outside the uh, orbit of the nation of denmark to solve the problem of the play and then there's no grace in battle no well, there is and there isn't, depending on I mean, fear. there are situations where you can, but you don't resolve a battle by grace, is what I mean. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't work that way. It's many years ago it was pointed out to me that even more so than in other Shakespearean plays, the actual space of Elsinore is important to understanding the play. It's it's a very insular kind of a setting, and there's stuff that happens outside, and it's very pointedly outside the ambit of Elsinore, and then there's the actual state, the, especially the moral and spiritual state within the walls of Elsinore itself, which obviously are rotten. Uh, the other thing uh, I should mention is the notion here again, that Hamlet is studying in Wittenberg, concept like grace, forgiveness, faith, and so on would have been the topics of considerable discussion. <laughs> the main topic. <laughs> main topic, and so, the fact that he comes back to this rotten little state of Elsinore, never mind Denmark, and seems to forget all teaching or even interest in such things seems remarkable in certain senses. Well, the the challenge here is that it, the the Lutheran view of politics is that the is that the um, at least my understanding here is that the, the the magistrates have the duty to wield the sword, and it's their duty to actually 
execute that justice. And it can be rough justice indeed. And so you don't expect grace from politician. Hamlet is involved, even though he's not the head of state, he's dealing with a, a traitor, a man who's, who's literally decapitated or decapitated, he's, he's killed the, the head of the country. And that needs to be exercised, that needs to be dealt with by very rough means. These are not the means of grace. They're not the church. It is the realm of politics and politics is pretty uh, messy and bloody to some degree. So I, I'm not sure, I just think it, it, it's working more on the political scale than the personal. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting, the one scene in which, um, and you mentioned this and I think you're right, when he sees his uncle on his knees praying to God and he doesn't wanna run him through because he, if he did, he might be saved and he, and he wants him to go to hell. That's the point in which Hamlet really, the darkness in Hamlet's soul really becomes evident there. And so that's, that, that, uh, that supports your position. Yeah, I suspect, I suspect. Um... So it's very unusual in that sense because usually in Shakespeare's plays, the dra dramaturge figures are exhibit grace. And that's one of the chief um, actions within the plays uh, is that demonstration of grace, whether it's Cordelia or whether it's uh, uh, in uh, Measure for Measure, um, the uh, chief protagonist there, uh, the, the uh, Duke, um, or, or, or several of them actually, or even, even Cordelia wants to show grace and so forth, right? Yeah. She, and she's a sort of a sacrificial Christ-like figure in the end. Yeah, you see this in The Winter's Tale, you see also, this Tempest. Um, there, there are lots of acts yes. which inhabit these things. So uh, it's, it's conspicuous in some senses by its absence here. So in that sense, it's the darkest of his plays and it's never discussed as such. Yeah, and the very, what makes it more interesting yet is the theological uncertainty with which the play begins and then persists, uh, as you mentioned, this is very much a, a man having a crisis of faith, uh, not because he believes that there is or is not a God and a heaven and all these sorts of things. It's that his vital understandings of what constitutes that are being challenged here at the deepest level, which is perhaps a good point to also mention that there's that three-part distinction again uh, when it comes to what one has belief in. We've got that most fundamental level of dogma. These are things you absolutely have to believe in and adhere to in order to be legitimately considered part of the Christian body, not just in Shakespeare's time, but at, of course at other times as well. Then you've got this very important next level down, which is doctrine. Doctrine is a big deal. It is vital, which is where, of course, Hamlet's uh, locating a lot of his doubts. Uh, but it's not a deal breaker at the end of the day. If you don't believe in dogmatic rules uh, of the faith, usually articulated in the creed or one of the creeds, then that's a serious problem. Doctrine, you can argue all day long and they're important arguments to have, but at the end of the day, that's not a deal breaker. And then of course you have the, the, the least important level of beliefs, which are at the level of opinion, um, which, you know, most people it's, they might not get too entrenched on these issues. And if, you know, if you believe, for instance, playing of drums during worship music is a bad thing, well, that's fine, that's your opinion, but it's not doctrine and certainly not dogma and so on and so forth. So Hamlet grounds his doubts kind of in that middle realm here, but it, there's still serious doubts that he has. Uh, Hamlet does not know where he stands. I, I would argue that Hamlet actually dies not knowing where he stands on a lot of issues uh, that, we, that crop up in the play. 
and this I is would, how we end the play. I would tend to agree with you. The only thing they decides is that he is going to act um, and take his vengeance, but that's not enough. So he's still an unresolved no. figure in that sense. Yeah. And and it requires yeah, and it requires Fortinbras to come in, and maybe this is one of the things that troubles him. He seems to recognize Fortinbras's legitimacy in his actions and in his appeal uh, in being there. I, there's the sense for all of Hamlet's admiration for his father that perhaps his father had wronged Fortinbras's father, and this was justice being visited upon the kingdom of Denmark. You see that played out in so many Shakespearean plays, especially his tragedies, where you have that great and oftentimes fascinating and sometimes even unexpected domino effect of moral activity, where you'll see certain things put in motion. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but then, of course, it sets in motion the next thing here, which is a, much, a somewhat bigger deal. And then you have this catastrophic thing, which comes from that. And so you just watch the whole thing go sideways. But of course, as we've already observed, uh, it is all ultimately set right at the end here, in this case, by Fortinbras, the external man of action, hmm. um, which Shakespeare tragically is not. Scott, did you want to say anything more on any particular point here in Hamlet? We could talk so long about no, this. No, I but... think we've covered the ground. I mean, the, every act in the whole play and every scene uh, has some significant features to it. The characters are rich and well-developed. The um, complexity of the design of the plot is, is equally so. Um, there are plots and subplots. There are foils all over the place. Everything from, as I said, Hamlet to, and Laertes are foils. So is Hamlet and Fortinbras. So is Polonius and the Gravedigger. So are Hamlet's father and Claudius. They're, they're all over the place. And as you mentioned, we are to compare and contrast them. And that is part of the moral working of the theater, but I thought we dragged out um, or at least threw some light on the main things here and to do further, I think, I mean, I think we're done for today. Um, if we're going to do it in one take, and uh, I think we thought we should do that. Uh, I think we're going to move on next time to Shakespeare's sonnets. That is correct. We are not entirely done with Shakespeare. As we mentioned previously in the previous episode, Shakespeare did not think that his fame was going to derive primarily in any lasting sense from his drama. He thought it was going to derive from his poetry. So that's exactly, we're going to follow Shakespeare's expectations in this and we're gonna have a, a long hard look at the sonnets of Shakespeare next time around. And we have a fair bit to discuss there. So we'd better leave that off as it stands. That's great. And we will, that's uh, then me, Dr. Scott Masson, with my colleague Bill Friesen, and we're with Paideia today. We'll see you next time.